food. So uh, it was interesting to see what the kids walked in the door with on that on that occasion. But uh, it was a it was a great week, and uh, and I know that a lot of folks are going to get it's going to meet some needs as as this offering gets shared out. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to First Kings chapter eighteen. First Kings chapter eighteen. Use one of our black pew Bibles out of the chairs in front of you. You'll find our text beginning today on page three hundred. Just a reminder to you to the series that we're in right now is is uh, I really have had a desire for us to spend some time in the Old Testament because we haven't been in the Old Testament in quite a while. And I'm also trying to build a sermon that really is kind of each segment stands on its own two feet. It's not really dependent upon what came before or what came after. And for us to look into the Old Testament and to see what we can learn from those who have gone before us about how we need to do faith today. And so we've entitled this series, Legacies. And last week we looked at King Josiah. And we really looked at what are some of the things it takes to be a person who makes a difference? A person who makes a spiritual difference. This week I want to back up in Old Testament history by a little over a couple hundred years and come to the life of Elijah. And I just want to look at one example, one event in the life of Elijah, obviously a monumental event, but a significant event in the life of Elijah that took place during the reign of King Ahab. King Ahab was one of the kings of the northern nation of Israel. His reign took place about 60 years after the death of Solomon. So this is very early, if you will, in the life of of the new nation. His reign, we know, was from 873 B.C. down to 853 B.C. And he's probably perhaps known as as much as for the person he was married to as anybody else. Because his wife's name was Jezebel. And, you know, uh, we still use that term today. It's still kind of a... One of those terms we use that, you know, like, well, that she's just nothing but a Jezebel, you know, somebody who is this, this, um, underminer kind of person. But I want us to look at the life of Elijah today out of 1 Kings 18, specifically with this kind of idea. What does it really take from us if we're going to answer the call of God on our lives? Now, my conviction, our church's conviction, is that God is alive, He's real, He's at work. And God continues to work in the lives of people. He draws them to a new relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. The Scripture talks about that as salvation. And as a result of that, we become the children of God. Jesus told His disciples that they weren't slaves or servants anymore, but they were His friends. And He had revealed that to them, and He called them to be active. In the same way, God is still active in the world, and He's active in our lives, and He's calling us. God speaks to us. He talks to to us about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do with our lives. Now, if you've thought about this very much, you know that answering the call of God can be difficult. We face challenges about that all the time. Our struggles to be faithful to God, to be obedient to God, to be faithful in our following after God, are really all wrapped in, in with us answering the call of God in our lives. And Elijah is this incredible picture for us about what does it take to answer the call of God in our lives. And there's some thoughts that are kind of running around in the back of my mind. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, the church that we had became stowaways with, this Church of the Redeemer out of Maryland, their pastor would, in many of the sites, took a few moments just to offer a a spiritual thought. And while we were on the top of Mount Carmel, 
where this event took place, looking out over the Jezreel Valley, which spans from the Mediterranean to the north and to the west of Mount Carmel, out to the south and to the east, he talked to us about this experience and he used three terms. I'm going to use those three terms today. After the use of those three terms, I don't have any idea what he, re- I don't remember what he said. You know, that's the difficulty with communication that we only remember about 10% of what we hear, which is one of the reasons why you have sheets in front of you, you know, so you can write things down and hopefully you remember better than I do through the course of this. But these three terms are very powerful terms for us to consider when we think about what does it take to answer the call of God in our lives. Because I don't know, I mean, I don't know about you are, but you know, I, I, this is the way I feel about my spiritual journey. I'm grateful for what God's doing, and I'm grateful for the blessings that I've experienced in my life when I have responded to God's call and been faithful. But there's many places where I have not been faithful enough or faithful at all. And so this is such a, a powerful message that speaks to me and hopefully to you about what does it really take for us to answer the call of God in our lives? What does it take for you and I to live with God, especially in an environment that's far less than supportive? So what I want to do for you is, is I want to read just the first verse and then pick up a little later in the story because it's, it's a fairly lengthy chapter. And it's in, Let me set the context. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, we, re- <laughs> we read the statement about Ahab. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who came before him. Doesn't sound like it's a great place, does it? Spiritually. This is not the kind of place where the king is out there rooting for people to walk closer with God. Because he himself is provoking God more than any other king. God has a message for the northern kingdom and for Ahab. He chooses to send it through a guy by the name of Elijah, the Tishbite, from the area of um, Gilead. We... We don't really know anything about the specific call of Elijah to be a prophet, but he definitely was a prophet. In chapter 17, God used Elijah to announce to the nation that there was going to be a drought, and the drought was going to lead to a famine. After Elijah proclaims this message, he's instructed to leave, and he makes his way across the Jordan River to the east, and he, and he hides out. As the drought gets worse and worse, the king is is eager to find Elijah to deal with them and to bring rain back to the land, if you will. And it's in that context that we pick up in chapter 18. It says, after a long term, after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. That's the area of central Israel, if you will. The story here kind of turns, and I'm just going to tell you the story at this point. Things are so bad that there's not even enough grass for the horses and the cattle of the king to eat anywhere in the nation. So Ahab, along with his trusty servant Obadiah, are dividing up the nation, and they're riding around trying to find if there's any places where there's patches of grass that they can have the king's horses and the king's cattle eat at. While they're out on this excursion, Elijah encounters Obadiah. And he tells Obadiah, he says, go and find your king and bring him to me because I'm ready to meet the king. And and Obadiah is fearful. He knows that Ahab is so anxious to get his hands on Elijah that if he goes to Ahab and says, I found Elijah, come come to him. And he gets there and Elijah isn't there. The king is going to be so enraged, he's he's just going to kill him. I mean, he searched all over the world, literally, trying to find Elijah in these three years. 
So Obadiah says, why are you trying to get me killed? You know, as soon as I leave, you're going to run off or the Spirit's going to take you somewhere else and, and I'm going to bring Elijah back and you're not going to be here and I'm going to land up in the grave. And, and Elijah says, no, 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 no. I'm going to be here. I'm going to meet. So, as the Lord lives, today I will encounter Ahab. So let's pick up in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you destroyer of Israel? And he replied, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commandments and followed the Baals, which is a, a pagan uh, fertility religion that was common in the land. So then Elijah goes on and says, Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Baal and Asherah were like the male and female gods of the fertility cult. So Ahab, he summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If, you're, if Yahweh's God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people didn't answer a word. They're still hedging their bets. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to serve two masters. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and, and place it on the wood, but not to light the fire of the sacrifice, if you will. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but, but not light the fire. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers with fire, He's God. And all the people said, that sounds good. Let's, ha- let's, have, let's have a little contest. A little come to Jesus meeting. See who's going to win here. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you're so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call in the name of your God. But remember, don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them and he prepared it. And they, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us! But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they did their lame dance around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to mock them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed out on them. And all afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. So all the people approached him, and then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of Yahweh. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold four gallons of water. Next he arranged the wood, cut up the bill, and placed it on top of the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. Then he said, a second time. And they did it a second time. Then he said, a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and and even the, the trench was filled. At the time for the offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Lord... God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant. And that at your word, I've done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God. That's what's at stake for us as we answer God's call in our lives. That other people can know that Yahweh is God. 
that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then Yahweh's fire fell and He consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust in it. It licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishun and slaughtered them there. It's just a small brook that runs towards the base of the hill of Mount Carmel. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel and he bowed down to the ground and he put his face between his knees. And then he said to his servant, go up and look at the sea and you can see the Mediterranean from the top of Mount Carmel. So he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And on the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. Because the valley out below him, as our tour guide told us, when it rains and it rains hard, it gets muddy and the chariots would get bogged down and you can't get through it. It actually had played a key role in a number of battles in the life of Israel. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord was on Elijah. And he tucked his mantle under his feet, under his belt, and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, which is way down in the southeast corner of the, of, of the plain. A good, probably 15-mile run, if not a 20-mile run. I want just to give you three words with some sub-points that are, that are imperative for us to get right if we're going to be people who answer the call of God. And one of those, if you and I are going to be people who answer the call of God, we have to have a sense of conviction in our lives. We have to have this, you know, this, this where we are just convinced, we're, over, we're just convicted about what God has called us to do and who we're supposed to be. You know, Elijah, he, he only moved because God has spoken. God told him in chapter 17, tell Ahab, tell everybody it's not going to rain. Then leave. And he did. And then here in chapter 18, when Ahab is ready to strangle him, sees him as the destroyer of his nation, his greatest enemy, God sends him back. And then he says, and tell him, and then gather this, this conflict. And, and he's living his life with a sense of conviction that God has told him what to do. I got to tell you, there isn't any way for you and I to live our lives in the dynamic of an unsupportive environment if we don't live our lives with a sense of conviction. We need to be convicted that God has spoken. We have to understand that in this book, God has spoken. And we have to have a deep, profound sense of conviction that God has spoken. As the Holy Spirit speaks to us and gives us guidance on what to do with our lives and and God's specific direction, we need to have that sense of conviction that we've heard the voice of God and respond. We have to be convicted knowing that God has spoken. We have to be convicted about what He said. Elijah didn't have any reservations whatsoever about what it is that God has called him to do. God was very specific. You and I need to know specifically what it is that God has called us to do. If not, we're kind of like these people who are kind of vacillating between two opinions, right? You know, well, I don't know if God really meant that or not. Whatever. We need to have a sense of conviction that we know that God has spoken and we know what God has said. And out of that, we know how it applies to our circumstance. Not only do we know the truth, but we know what we're supposed to do about the truth. What actions we are to take, you know? We read some things in the Scriptures that are hard for us to understand. You know, one of the ones that 
you know, I think that you and I really struggle to apply to our lives. You know, Jesus said, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, to cut it off and to throw it away. Well, you and I, most of the time we go to the text, well, we, uh, you know, we, he doesn't literally mean for us to pluck out our right eye and to get rid of it or to cut. We understand, though, that God expects us in response to what causes us to stumble, to make adjustments in our lives. Do you know what that means specifically for you? Do I know what that means specifically for me? You know, you read stories all the time about the guys who are much more on the road as, as communicators of the gospel, the guys who, who travel quite a bit. And you'll hear that them say, you know, one of the things that they had to do in order to get ready was for, to, be, to be faithful on the road, when they get to the hotel desk, they would tell to the clerk, I want you to send somebody else up and take the television out of my room. Getting rid of the right hand. Because sometimes the television in a hotel room all by yourself can lead you to stumble. They knew what it meant. We have to have that sense of conviction in our lives. We're not going to answer the call of God unless we have that deep sense of conviction in our lives. And to me, this is where the, the, the place of prayer is so important in our journey. Because it's, prayer is really in a place that transforms what we know God has said into the place where we know is what we're supposed to do about what God has said to us. First word, conviction. The second word is confidence. You're not going to answer the call of God unless you're confident. Now, this is, the, this is not a confidence in circumstances. It's not a confidence in resources. It's not even a confidence in ourselves, but it's in a confidence in God and His ability to keep His word. Let me just unpack that very quickly for you in, in, this, uh, in this thing. You know, circumstances. What, what, was Abraham, what, was, what was Elijah there to do? Bring the rain back, right? How long had it been since it had rained? Three years, right? So were the circumstances to tell you that I'm just catching the wave of opportunity and maybe I'll get to be the one who accurately... No, there isn't anything in the circumstances to support Ahab's, Elijah's conviction that it's going to rain. That only comes from God. He has this confidence though, but it's not built in his circumstances. It's also not built in his resources. Though it's not accurate because Obadiah had protected some of the prophets... Elijah was convinced that he was the only one left who was faithful to God. So it wasn't like he had overwhelming numbers to make this happen, right? 450 prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah. The king, the queen, and all that was at their disposal, all of that was against them. So you wouldn't say his confidence laid in his resources, right? It's interesting that we go out on mission projects. We go out in groups of 15 or 20 or 25 or whatever. And when we're in a group... We're bold. We get by ourselves, we wilt. Is our confidence in resources, the strength in numbers, or is it built on God? Elijah's confidence wasn't even built in himself. He acknowledged that it was God who had called him to be there. And when he went to bring the fire down, he said, God, he didn't say, hey God, make me look good in the face of the nation, right? He said, listen, I'm asking you to do this so that they'll know that you are God. It was all about God. It wasn't in himself. And with that, Elijah's confidence was in God and God's ability to keep His Word. Answer me that they may know. You and I, in order to be people who answer the call of God, not just when we're kind of all geared up for one particular event in our lives, but in the daily grind of being the person of God in the life that God has put you in, you and I have to be confident in the God who has called us not built in our circumstances. It's not built in the resources that are at, around us. It's not built in ourselves. But it's our profound trust in God and His ability to keep His Word. The last thing I'd say to you is that it takes conviction. It takes confidence. But it also takes a readiness 
for conflict or confrontation. Let me make a statement to you. There is no way for you to answer the call of God in your life and not enter into conflict. This idea that somehow or another I, I pray the prayer and God comes in and all of my problems, all of, the, all of it just goes away, that's, that's a fallacy. All the debt of your sin, all the things that keep you from God, all the barriers to that relationship, that's all gone. But the struggle of being the person of God on this side of eternity still remains. And we have to be ready for conflict or confrontation or difficulty, whatever kind of term you want to use. And Elijah, I mean, it just stands out to him, right? He, he finally meets Ahab. He says, bring all the people together. I mean, the very first words out of Ahab's mouth are what? You destroyer of Israel. I mean, the battle is on, right? It's not a pleasant moment. This is the guy who's got the entire army behind them. The confrontation is on. And, and you and I, if we're going to be people who answer the call of God in our lives, if we're going to be the people who take the steps to be the people of God, we have to be ready for confrontation. Some of that confrontation is with ourselves. We fight with ourselves. The Scripture tells us that our fleshly natures wage war against our souls. If you want to have a couple of references to write down, write down 1 Peter 2.11 and James 1.14. Many of us, our worst spiritual enemy is ourselves. We've convinced ourselves that we are really in love with God and we really don't have a clue about what it means to walk with God. And what's driving all of that decision is that we just want life to stay the same. And you're in conflict. Sometimes our battle is with the world. Jesus said that if we stayed in the world, you know, that the, the world's going to hate us because it's hated Him. And that hatred takes towards us. Peter talks about the fact that, you know, he says, you, you know, your friends are, are surprised that you no longer live like them. And because of that, they malign you. They attack you. They try to pull you down. If you're, if you're going to try to answer the call of God, you're going to experience some hostility from the world. You just are. And lastly, as Paul put it so accurately in the, in the book of Ephesians, we also find ourselves in conflict with spiritual forces. The Scripture puts it this way. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle, our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You want to answer the call of God, you're going to find yourself in conflict. For Elijah, it was 450 to 1. Who knows what the form is going to be for us. Let me come back to where we started. God's at work. God's at work in you. God is calling you to be a certain type of person and to do certain things with your life, specifically in His service. If you're going to answer that call, you're going to be convicted that it really is the voice of God speaking to you. You have to have confidence in the God who is calling you. And you have to be ready for the journey that's ahead of you. And when we do that, like Elijah, spiritual victories happen and God is glorified. Let's pray together. Father, there's much for us to learn from Elijah. Somehow or another, the battles we seem to face in the workplace or in our homes or in our neighborhoods or even inside of ourselves, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of every week, just doesn't seem to be near as significant or as dramatic as the challenges that Elijah faced. But handling those with the exact same level of conviction and confidence and preparedness for the conflict, God, are essential for us answering your call in our lives. God, we are grateful that you call us, that you have incredible expectations for us, and we seek like Elijah to answer the call through faith. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I invite our worship team to come up. I'm going to lead us in our concluding song.